0: I knew that they were growing up a slope, so I could work the dog up the slope towards the covey, uh, which I could hear calling, and that would mean the bird would rocket up and probably come over us. Um, and we did this, we went up really early in the morning, got the got the covey located, got the dog working up the hill, and she came on point just ahead of me, and slightly above me, and we we flashed the growing and the black sparrow just rocketed up and took it.
1: Hey, welcome back everyone for another episode of the Falconry Told podcast and this will be the 10th episode and also the last episode that is going to feature falconers from Africa in this series. The next couple episodes are going to be bonus episodes from the Cape Falconry Club with falconers from the UK that were I was fortunate enough to be in the same place at the same time to meet with them and be able to record them and, and have a couple of conversations. So I really hope you all have enjoyed this series and have learned something from it and have enjoyed listening to them as much as I have, kind of listening back and editing these and kind of revisiting these conversations that I had while I was out there. So I want to give a special thanks, of course, to the Cape Falconry Club for the invite As I've said many times before in this series, I can't thank them enough for the opportunity to help bring their stories out to the wider falconry world, so it'll always be a a very cherished and memorable experience for me, and I also want to thank the Falconry Heritage Trust for their role in helping make this happen, also with helping to sponsor some of the Airfare and other travel expenses that kind of came along with making this trip happen. So if you want to check them out, if you haven't yet, head to falconryheritage.org and please give some consideration into helping to donate to their cause and maybe supporting them in their quest to continue to preserve falconry and the cultural heritage surrounding falconry around the world for years to come. And also a big thank you to one of the continued newer supporters of our podcast being Bobby Yaga Crafts out of Poland. If you haven't had a chance to check his stuff out yet or haven't heard me brag many times over about the amazing quality of his handmade products, then I highly recommend you check him out It's at Bobby Yaga Goshawk on Instagram or the contact information can be found on our website also at falconretold.com. It's all great stuff, and he's also got a lot of things that's in the works, and he's always constantly trying to refine his craft as well, which is something that I like very much in an equipment maker. So, as I said before, give him a quick shout-out and give some time to, to kind of check out what he's doing over there. It's, it's great stuff. You won't regret it. And this conversation that I recorded with Dr. Adrian Lombard was one of the last that I recorded while I was in South Africa. I had the good fortune to be able to spend a couple of longer car rides with Adrian and get to know him some. And we had a chance to kind of discuss different issues and things that go on in our respective countries. And I also got to pick his brain more about some of his medical practice and, and different aspects of falconry as well. So I feel fortunate to have gotten a chance to know him. He's a wealth of knowledge and has been a falconer for a very long time and has contributed a lot to falconry in South Africa. And it's also been a part of the IAF and contributed back to the IAF a lot as well over the years. So I hope you enjoy this last conversation that I had with some falconers in South Africa and hope you look forward to the couple of bonus episodes that are coming up with a couple of falconers from the uk that i recorded while i was there as well so enjoy and here we go well at least we got your your truck situation ironed out this morning <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> how long have you been uh, worrying about those fuses <laughs> i wasn't <laughs> waiting until i drove out this morning <laughs> yeah for everybody listening we had to make a slight detour into uh was it series that's how you series, do it? Yeah, yeah. Series. yeah town close to where the meat is um yeah we were out hawking this morning and uh yeah our uh, our guest for this episode saw that he uh didn't have particular lights that he needed so uh yeah we had to make a trip into town after we uh Saw two Falcons, um, sort of fly this morning, (laughs) but, um, but yeah, no, it's been, like I said, it's been a good week and, um, it's been a great week. I'm glad that we've had a chance to get to know each other some and um yeah, talking at, at dinner last night, I I kind of discovered that we had a you know quite a bit of other other things in common with you, you know, having your your prior uh, you know experiences in the medical field and and things like that and uh and why don't you go ahead and just kind of tell everybody what you you know some of your your past um you know professional history's
0: been? Okay. Um well, I qualified uh, as a medical doctor um and i'm a specialist in family medicine i practice in a little town on the south of, of cape town called fishhook um i've been there for a long time <laughs> um so it keeps me out of mischief but uh you got to keep yourself sane as well so I do you fault me <laughs> yeah yeah
1: well it's just kind of funny because we were at dinner last night and i just kind of chuckled because you you uh you know, we're talking to me and then you kind of pointed over at at one of the other guys and it's like, yeah, I, I delivered him. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. That's kind of the, what got that topic of conversation started, but, uh, but I mean, so you're still kind of practicing
0: to some degree then. Yeah, I'm still, still fully engaged with mm-hmm. medical mean, practice, um, but frightened to stop because I've watched a few of my colleagues retire and die. So. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. There was, um, there was a
1: neonatologist that I used to work with and, um, he was afraid to retire for that reason. And I think he's still, I mean, he's, he's been, he was practicing for like 50, 60 years and, uh, yeah, I mean, he just couldn't stop. He's just like, I don't know what I'll do with myself if I, (laughs) if, uh, you know, if if I stop practice, but yeah,
0: that's kind of his concern too. Yeah. I haven't been going quite that long, but about 40 years.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It's still a nice chunk of change.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, um, I mean,
1: are you? Um, I mean, you're not. Unfortunately, you're not really flying any any birds and
0: stuff right now either, right? No, I'm not flying anymore. Um, it's become a bit of well, a bit difficult for me. Um, Time wise, isn't always an issue because I'm involved in all sorts of other things. Um, and because of the growth of the city and various other things i've lost a lot of the ground which i had to fly on close to home so i have to travel a long way now and so i just decided that what i would do is i'd let other people take the stress and i would go out with the with the other guys flying their hawks and it uh, works quite nicely (laughs) yeah
1: i mean and it seems like you enjoy just kind of taking your dog and and letting your dog run for for other under other falcons and stuff too right
0: yeah so we're still working a dog um and it gets me out in the felt. It's great fun. Yeah. yeah, yeah, awesome.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, like I said, this week's been pretty eye opening in a lot of ways, and, and getting to meet so many different people, and you know, now talking to two, you know, veterinary doctors this week, on top of you know yourself, and you know, there's been such a, a diverse amount of, of of people here, you know, that have different backgrounds and and careers, and you know, and as much as we can say, you know, it's almost, we can't say it enough. It's, it's funny how so many factors in falconry are just consistent around the world. There's always so much diversity.
0: Yeah, that's true. I think, I think, um, falcon is incredibly diverse. You will find falconers from every walk of life pretty well. Uh, I have a little joke. I say, well, you, you know, you can find any kind of person as a falconer, but you won't find a dull one. So (laughs)
1: yeah, (laughs) Yeah, there is that. Yeah. Everybody's kind of got their, uh, Yeah, they're quirks. They're all pretty nuts. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're all interesting bunch, that's for sure. But well, and so I mean part of the reason why I was able to meet you Over this week, and of course, over the weekend, um, you know, kind of was partially due to your, you know, uh, involvement in those, you know, other things that you just kind of mentioned just now that that kind of keep you busy. Um, Why don't you just go ahead and and kind of tell people what your role was, you know, this weekend, like what kind of was was going on with the conference, and um, you know, kind of start off maybe talking about that a little bit, and you know, some of the different roles that you've served. In similar,
0: you know, capacities. Yeah, so pr- probably if I put it in context, um, I have became involved with the IAF back in 2002, I think it was. Um, and then a few years later, I became the executive secretary and then I was the president of the IAF from... 2013 to 2018, um, which was two, three-year terms that were allowed. It was plenty. <laughs> um, but during that time, we built up relationships with other organizations and specifically with the IUCN. Um, the IUCN's the world's largest conservation organization, so pretty significant organization, uh, which we felt was... Something that we needed to be associated with the the IF has been a member of the IUCN, so it's an, ordinary, it's an international member of the IUCN, IUCN since 1996. Um, but we linked up with Professor Robert Kenwood, and he at that stage was heading a group called the Sustainable Use and Management of Ecosystems Group, and he had some projects in mind. Um, looking at using uh, a software that's quite simple for people to manage, creating portals which um, can be multilingual. And I was looking for some conservation engagement, which the IEF could start to undertake, which wouldn't cost a lot of money because we didn't have a lot of money. So this sort of of project was within our means. Um, we found a project which was needed uh, to develop a multilingual portal um, to try and assess what the attitudes and perceptions were of falconers and falcon trappers, people involved with falcons throughout the range of the sake falcon. Um, and that's a pretty tricky piece of country because it extends from China all the way through to Hungary. Um, And a lot of the people there obviously don't speak English and are now maybe quite wary of speaking English. So being able to communicate with them in their own languages um, and to open contact with them is quite an achievement. And we we teamed up with BirdLife International and with... um, convention for migratory species the raptors mou who wanted this project done and we managed to get it going and through the links that the IAF had with people in those countries we were able to get young folk involved doing translations uh, basically for pocket money and we then got the, the portals up and working and we designed it so that um they could be you it could be operated from smartphones because we found that that most people in that part of the world have access to a smartphone and then to try and get their opinions and views on stuff we ran little competitions uh, so if you responded then you were in the hat to to win a prize and that got got us it was actually remarkably successful we we got a lot of hits we got a lot of people communicating right across Pretty difficult part of part of Eurasia. Um, and it because the, the the project was successful, we then looked at further projects along this line. Um, and basically that has led to a memorandum of understanding between IF and IUCN. Um, I've subsequently I'm no longer president of the IF, so And Robert Kenwood had done his two four-year stints with the IUCN as the lead of this group, and I took over from him. So that brings us back to what this (laughs) conference was all about. And really, it's about the engagement of falconers and other sustainable users in conservation, um, and to look at ways that they can make a difference um, through conservation work. That was what the conference was about.
1: Well, and and what kind of headway do you think you all have been able, you know, to make with a lot of your, your efforts, you know, in recent history? I mean, what what kind of roadblocks do you have to face and, and just how much stuff do you all have to deal with in trying to? Yeah, I'm sure this is a kind of a somewhat um, a very broad question, but I mean, what have been your experiences in dealing with a lot of these things?
0: Yeah. Okay, Probably two sides, to, to, to two ways to see that. From a falconer's point of view, because falconers are often very close to nature, they're involved in nature, they love raptors, that's why they do what they do, and they see what's going on in nature. They're often very interested in conservation, conservation issues, they're easy to engage um, in conservation projects. Um, but they're also very good sentinels. They it was the falconers who recognised, for example, that peregrines were disappearing from Britain. Um, it was um, it was falconers who recognised that that small game and biodiversity was disappearing across Europe, and in fact, that started our second project, which was one to try and teach people how to increase biodiversity in, in agricultural lands. Um, so there's a portal called Perdixnet um, which is designed to do that in Europe. Um, the other side of the coin is that people who know nothing about falconry and understand it as a hunting practice, um, or believe it to be a hunting practice, which it is, um, are often wary of falconers and uncertain about how, they, how to engage with them and whether they're good for conservation or not. <laughs> um, so often conferences like this, where we can engage different people and bring them all together, are remarkably successful. You walk away as friends with common objectives, um, often plans to take things forwards, um, and bringing other role players together. So a lot of the stuff we try and do is, is to get Faulkner's engaged with other groups, um, and engaging in conservation work. And
1: overall, I mean, over the multiple years that you've been kind of serving in these capacities and roles, I mean, how drastic of a change do you think there has been? And, you know, from a multi country point of view, I mean, like, how many countries do you think now take us and review us in a different light now because of a lot of these, these efforts?
0: um okay so so we've identified ninety countries in which falconry occurs, and we have contact with the falconers there and they they become part of the if um, the engagement with the governments often similarly governments and um, administrators worry about falconers because they know nothing about them um, The big game changer was when UNESCO recognized falconry as an intangible cultural her- heritage of humanity. That was the first eleven countries joined the the element uh, of the convention in twenty ten. Another two followed two years later, or one year later, and then now I think twenty four countries. It's the biggest single element uh, with underneath the convention. Um, Some other elements may involve two or three countries, but none of them involve as many, and so. It's quite a big thing for falconers to recognize that we're part of a global practice. Sure, we have our differences, our different practices, our different cultures within falconry, but falconry itself is a global practice. Um, And it's beneficial to conservation. It's good for culture. It's good for bringing people together, uh, establishing understandings between them. Um, We've been very fortunate in that the, the UAE has been funding us, uh, specifically Abu Dhabi, um, and they've recognised the necessity to bring young people into into falconry and to encourage them to to practice falconry and to get together. Um, so we have they've run a series of falconry festivals, um, and to these festivals they sponsor young people from all over the world to come. And represent their countries and share their culture. Um, which and these festivals are really exciting events, um, because you have a whole crowd of, of young Falconers, some people with a common interest, but but very, very diverse. Um, all engaging together. I and mean, it's amazing. If you can't speak a language, you can somehow make yourself understood. Um, that's led to some pretty good things because we now have a youth group, we have a the translators group, which has got a capacity to translate into a whole range of languages. I think we've got about the ability to do about 30 different languages in the IF, uh, which is an enormous achievement. Any NGO which can offer multilingual translation is pretty unique. And these guys are enthusiastic, so they often do it for nothing, or they do it for the hope they may come to a festival, or but it's it's often just for nothing. They we give them an article which needs translating, say from English to Russian, and they do it very cheerfully. So if you look at the at the IEF journal and you'll see little QR codes on every page, and there'll be three or four different languages. You can use your smartphone, you can get the article in one of those languages, um, which makes the journal at very low cost accessible in multiple languages. Also quite an achievement. Um, So having young people in the ability to translate languages makes us able to do all sorts of different projects Um, and makes us very valuable to an organization like the IECN.
1: Yeah, well, and as they say, Rome isn't built overnight, and you know, I mean, every little thing that that you can kind of put in place, you know, just to break down whatever barriers
0: that 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 do exist, I'm sure is is always a plus. Often it's it's just informing people what mm-hmm. Faulkner is about and breaking down the preconceptions um, and. Misunderstandings against sustainable use, against hunting, against using wild animals to do stuff um, and to realize that that actually there's something really special and that people should treasure what, what, what falconers do uh, and to recognize it's a shared heritage amongst many, many people um, and be proud of that. Yeah.
1: And I know we were kind of talking about this earlier today and even some last night and you had to really kind of think about it for a minute. But, you know, while serving in these capacities, I know you've had the chance to kind of deal directly with and also visit, you know, a decent amount of countries. And, you know, and, you know, I asked you what which one that you found kind of to be personally one of the more fascinating, you know, countries that you had a chance to kind of. You know, experience, and I guess tell tell people what your um, what your answer to that was and, and
0: why. Well, I, I agree. It it took quite a lot of thought because um, pretty well every country I've been to has been quite amazing. Um, just just to perhaps interject, when you go to a country as a falconer, and perhaps this is something you you personally are enjoying at the moment you don't go in as a tourist and travel around in a tourist bus and look at the sights of course <laughs> you go in yeah. at ground level you meet the people you sit in their homes You eat their food you, you talk to people who you would never otherwise meet um, and it's an incredible privilege um, i've just been hosted all over the world by by all sorts of extraordinary people and it's been wonderful i think i said to you that, that the country which i found most incredible was pakistan and and um It was a hard one to pick. Uh, You (laughs) put me on a a corner to try and pick one country Um, because there are just so many examples. But um, yeah, you know, it's a country which we all have preconceptions about, uh, about the people, about the customs, about the laws, about the way the government works. And yet you go there and you meet the people and they're they're very nice people, (laughs) incredibly hospitable, Uh, They have the same problems and so on that we do. They're very open, ready to engage right from the ground up to government level. Um, So um, that was a fascinating visit because I got once again into the homes and lives of of people who one very seldom has an opportunity to get that close to. Um, But also I met with government ministers and and, uh, provincial officials and so on, who once again were incredibly open, quite prepared to talk to me um, and to listen to what we have said. And the outcome of it was a memorandum of understanding between IAF and Pakistan to promote raptor conservation. Um, And that's that MIU is taking work forwards as we speak. So. You know, it's it's just been a, a very privileged experience. All these <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, and, and like I said, I always like getting I always like getting uh, people's opinions because I mean, part of the reason why I love doing this so much is because I do get to see for myself. I mean, especially over the last handful of years or so, there's been a lot of things that have happened with me in my personal life that have really just kind of made me, you know, really question, you know, a lot of things and perceptions of, of different you know, I mean, it, cultures and different things. And so I like seeing for myself, you know, what, uh, what things are like and forming my own opinion. And I do in the process, I do like meeting lots of other people that do the same. And, and um, you know, I've have had the, the fortunate uh, ability to experience a lot of different cultures especially in, in falconry, you know, firsthand. So, you know, thanks for being willing to share that. I know it's kind of putting you on the spot a little bit because you know, it, it really, once you've been to enough places and, you know, I know whenever I get asked certain things, it's hard for me to pick even just, and I'm I'm sure I probably haven't been to half the places that you've gotten to go. But, you know, I, there's always really great things about each place that make it so hard to really, you know, narrow down one particular, you know, place as being like a, like a favorite, so...
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm just really using Pakistan as an example because yeah. from my point of view, going to places like Britain and the States mm-hmm. and really getting to know the people from those countries and walking in their countryside and going to their homes gives you a completely different insight into countries which you otherwise hear about on the news, you see on TV. <laughs> and it's, it's a very different world out there, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. yeah. Um, so you know, extraordinarily fortunate. But it perhaps this is one of the important things about the globalisation of falconry is that it does bring people from different backgrounds and different perceptions together, and in a in a common um, practice, common goals, um, and bring. It's actually quite amazing. Um, this was my first experience with IF in two thousand and two when I went to the meeting in Abu Dhabi, and they'd brought. People literally from all over the world and I was sitting there talking to people from Turkmenistan and uh, Korea and goodness knows where else and I never thought I would ever meet people like this. Sit and chat with them. It was just a mind blowing experience and it me- it was really what got me going and trying to, to contribute and volunteer with the IF. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, luckily there was luckily there was something that was a, a catalyst for you, like, mm. you know, Uh, there's always got to be some kind of spark that gets people motivated and interested in, in doing some of the, well, for lack of better words, crazy things we do in some ways, you know, I mean, (laughs) I mean, including falconry itself, which I'm sure we can talk about a lot of these other things all day, but I do want to go ahead and just branch into, you know, the, the falconry part of your life and, and just find out, you know, if, if you wouldn't mind, you know, share with us how you got into Falconry and what was kind of your, I don't know, the, the light bulb moment, I
0: guess. Okay. Um, I grew up in Rhodesia, what, now, what is now Zimbabwe. Um, and as a schoolboy, I had a neighbor who the father of one of my friends at school. Who was in falconry, and I saw him doing this. Like, hey, that, that looks like fun, you know? Um, it just ticked. That was something I'd like to do. And he was very really decent to me, he got me started, showed me how to catch a hawk and train it. Um, I then, the school that I was at was a boarding school, and they were also very accepting. Uh, there was a teacher there who, well, a couple of teachers there who were very supportive of me doing falconry. One was a, a very good raptor photographer. I'd a child called Peter Stane. Um and he wanted a kid who would climb trees and build <laughs> hides for him and scramble around the bush looking for looking for reptiles. And uh, so I was um well in my element there. Um and Peter and I are still friends today. He's he's getting on now, he's in his eighties. But um yeah, it was a wonderful experience and um the school itself was was supportive of me and I got on and flew hawks there and never stopped. Um, Later in life, I I sort of realized that the bird which suits me best or suited me best is the black sparrow hawk. Um, It's a fairly challenging hawk and the closest comparator, I think, is probably the Cooper's hawk, which is a bit smaller, but but probably quite similar in temperament. So the black sparrowhawk is a very big sparrowhawk. It's not a goshawk. Um, so it comes with management challenges and temperament challenges. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's something which you, you've got to l- work at to get right. Um, but it's a very exciting bird. It's, it's, um, for an individual falconer, it's a, a very dramatic hunter. It's very fast. Uh, aggressive um so eventually what i wound up doing was flying black sparrowhawk on guinea fowl i've accessed lots of guinea fowl and wild guinea fowl are quite a challenging species to hunt um they're very different from the farmyard variety that that people think about <laughs> um, and yeah so that's what i finally wound up wound up spending most of my falconer career doing. Um, and I found it very challenging, but also very satisfying. It's a, it's a nice thing to get right. Yeah. Well,
1: and before I ask you some more questions about that, I mean, what, what other birds did you start with? And, and around the time that you started in, I mean, were all the, um, was all the, the regulations and how, you know, Zimbabwe like currently does things. I mean, were those already in place or did you kind of come into falconry before
0: a lot of those things were in place? Yeah. So, I came into falconry before those things were in place um and we were pretty rough and ready <laughs> um We didn't really know a lot about the indigenous raptors there and what could be done with them um the first first bird I flew was actually something called a lizard buzzard, and i I managed to catch some pretty strange things with it um but it it uh, yeah, I mean that's kids getting into into falconry and and taking opportunities and i flew an african goshawk and caught some stuff with that um but then i the first bird that i probably properly flew was a lana Falcon. um so i didn't really know how to hunt a falcon but got this bird flying and going up in thermals and having all sorts of fun and it was really exhilarating and and that what probably made me a an addict for life yeah. <laughs> well and yeah. did you
1: did you fly any other species in between there too i mean i know you were practicing for a long time but i mean did you did you fly any like african hawk eagles or anything or did you okay i
0: did fly some african <laughs> <hawk eagles. laughs> so while i was a while i was a student um my my time to fly hawks was pretty limited but flying an african hawk eagle was something which which could fit in because it's a it's it's a raptor, which one didn't have to fly every day. Um, so, and what we were doing there was night hawking with the African hawk eagles, which actually is a whole bunch of fun. Um, they chase uh, scrub hairs, which like the brown hair or. I suppose, presume you're jackrabbit, I'm sure. Um, and in the spot, they're a nocturnal animal. They come out at night. Um, we get them the spotlight. They run and jink. Um, and it's quite a challenge to a hawk eagle to catch them. Um, so, yeah, I fly through hawk eagles like that. I also got them hunting guinea fowl. But they really are not as as adept and as exhilarating hunting guinea fowl as a black sparrow hawk. So, Yeah yeah
1: so i it's kind of funny that you say that something like a um an african hawk eagle would fit more into your schedule in your life than like some of these other species i mean that's that's kind of intriguing was there i mean was there a particular quality about that that or was it just kind of where you were in proximity to like being able to hunt or things that kind of made it at that time a little bit a better fit for your life
0: Look, I think if you want to fly a falcon well, or even a black sparrowhawk well, you need to have time and access to quarry. Um, you've got to be able to get out pretty frequently, ideally every day, but at least sort of three, four times a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hawk eagle flying at night on, on hairs and so on, I didn't have to do that. So I could fit it in with my studies, maybe fly at weekends, one night a week, something like that. Um,
1: yeah. Um, and yeah and they, they didn't require near the near the work then that uh that the other species did
0: yeah they're a fairly phlegmatic animal um when they settle into what you're doing um yeah they don't require the maintenance that a black sparrow or maybe a, a peregrine or something
1: does. so it'd be yeah. kind of like you know uh people that that fly, you know, like red, you know, like red tails, red and, tails stuff. I mean, and, uh, and, and so
0: hawks sure, And it, and it kind of sure.
1: goes without saying, I mean, we, we have to say, of course, if you fly any species more, you're going to get more out of it. They're going to be better fit and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, sure. really you, you need to dedicate as much time as possible to it. But, but yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a general rule of thumb there, there, there are species that it seems like you can, you know, you don't have to fly quite as much just because of their temperament and, and, and stuff. So, well, I didn't, yeah, I didn't know that about them. You know, I think that, um, you know, like I said, I've really been enjoying, you know, learning about all this stuff, you know, this week. And, and, um, yeah, I mean, as far as the, the black spars, I I guess we can, we can kind of go back around to, to them then. You know, I've, I've had a couple of conversations so far this week about, about black spars. And, uh, you know, one of which was from, uh, you know, Zane, who's, <laughs> who is who's one of your yeah. esteemed apprentices. <laughs> oh, Zane, Zane's, Zane flew a couple of pretty good black spars. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. And um, but, you know, one of the questions that I had for for them also, and I'm, I'll ask you what your opinion is. I know there's kind of a consensus, like because you you did make the comparison, and and I was kind of assuming too that they probably are the most like I don't know similar to to Cooper socks at least in our in temperament and and things like that. Do you think that that there's a lesser percentage of them that are probably suitable to be falconry birds just because of their temperament and stuff, as opposed to like other species? Because that's kind of a theory that that you know some people have in the U.S. Is you know, I mean, it's it's a lot harder to find a Cooper's hawk that you know that you can work through those temperament barriers and then the nervous nature and everything that. So, I mean, I'm just kind of curious what your what your thoughts are on that.
0: So that all boils down to management. Mm -hmm. and training techniques um and i don't know that there's necessarily a proportion of birds that are bad birds and never going to be suitable for falconry certainly there probably is the odd one um but it's in that initial management when you take up a bird and you start working with it and you've got to think every step of the way not to make mistakes um you know, if you if you make a mistake with a bird, it becomes pretty hardwired and and impossible to turn around, um, and it's particularly true with a species such as the black sparrow. You've got to really think out what you're going to do and be ready for it. Um, and I've tried various training techniques. Um, I did make an imprint. I made a couple of imprints. One was an exceptional bird, um, but. They really need an imprint you need to hunt at high intensity. You need to get them hunting pretty well every day, um, at least four or five times a week. Um, and you've got to really stay on top of it and and work at it and, and think out everything that you're doing with the bird. And I wouldn't readily make another imprint because um, I understand the sort of challenge of it to keep it good. Um, And what I did subsequently was I learned how to do waking as a training technique properly. Um, I think a lot of people think waking is some sort of way of tormenting the hawk and the falconer at the same time. (laughs) Uh, It is not that. Um, It's a very intense training period when you have an initial window with a new bird, which has no experience you have about 72 hours to introduce that bird to everything. And it thinks that everything new is probably going to kill it, but it doesn't, and it becomes accepted. So you do in 72 hours what you would probably do during the maturing period of a, of a of an imprint. Um, and at the end of that period, you can have a bird which is pretty nearly bomb-proof. It has a most of the good qualities of an imprint and none of the vices um and you can have a really lovely bird that you can fly at a good high weight and is pretty relaxed with most things except things you never introduced it to <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> Man, 72 hours is a that's not very much time yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to, yeah. to to expose yeah. and what what were all so the things you yeah go
0: into that knowing exactly what you want to do well and that's what's, what's um, going to be my next question really yeah. Prepared. yeah yeah, yeah. So you catch the bird up um, and it's hooded and you put all the equipment on it. And then the next trick is to get it to stand on the glove, standing on the glove, and you have it right in the middle of your house, the dog sitting beside you, and the hood comes off for a second and goes straight back on again. <laughs> and it got a little glimpse, What it saw it didn't kill it, but yeah, back in the hood, and the hood's a safe place. So, you know, we play a game as children called, you know, catches and den. And you get in his den, you're safe. So, you teach the hawk that the hood is den. When it's in the hood, no one messes with it, it doesn't get touched, it doesn't get pushed around. It's quite safe. The hood comes off and it sees stuff around it, and hood goes back one. And then, very slowly, it starts to relax. And then you introduce food. And then you have the dog sitting on your lap while it's eating the food. And then you drive around in the car with the hood on, the hood comes off, the hood goes back on, you take it to some friends, you do all of these things. Um, And slowly, during the 72 hours, it's learning all these things, it's eating now, it's sitting on the glove, the hood's coming on and off, so it's pretty used to the hood coming on and off. But it's learning very fast, all the things that are around it, and nothing harms it end of that time, you've got a bird that's pretty relaxed and you can now start working with and training and introducing training techniques to. Yeah, that's what waking is (laughs) in a nutshell.
1: (laughs) Well, and and thanks for sharing that because I think there's a lot of different preconceived notions about the definitions of a lot of different things, you know, like, um, and a lot of those are kind of I think developed just depending on who you talk to and, you know, also like depending on what source you're getting them from also. So, so,
0: so if you think about it, waking was a technique developed by old falconers, they're often professional falconers. They knew exactly what they were doing with birds of prey. They were working generally with passage birds. Uh, they despised the iases, um, and they developed these techniques. They, they knew what they were doing. Um, the idea of keeping the bird awake during that period, not so much. I think it relaxes and it can calm down inside the hood, but it stays on the glove and with you for the 72 hours. You can take a nap in the chair, the bird sitting on your glove, with the hood on, you both take a bit of a nap, and then everything starts up again. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It's a lot of work. <laughs> it is, it is. But it's only yeah. two hours of hard work to give you a really good bird. Yeah. 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 yeah.
1: Yeah. And for sure, I mean, especially, you know, considering most, you know, hunting seasons or anywhere between, you know, like an average of what, like six months, four to six months, depending on what you're hunting, you know, and.
0: But I you're going to have this bird in another six, seven years if you like. Sure. Yeah. yeah. I mean,
1: yeah. I mean, there's nothing says that it's only got to be, you know, just for the one season. Yeah. But, but so, yeah, I mean, you make a good point. I mean, it's three, you know, 72 hours for, you know, however long you're gonna you're gonna have the bird, which is I'm sure, well, hopefully, gonna be longer than 72 hours. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, no, I mean, well, and and like I said, thanks for for kind of you know explaining that a little bit more in depth because. I said, you, you, you can get definitions or different interpretations of things, you know, from reading a, a book. And I'm sure depending on what source you're getting it, it from, be I mean, are
0: different. Yeah. Different I mean, thanks on that. I'm sure.
1: they're all Well, are. and, and, you know, I know like just from how it was explained to me initially, I mean, that's basically, you know, it was more keeping the, like, like what, what it sounds like, even the bird awake, you know? And, cool.
0: and, uh, yeah, this you know, perception that if you exhaust the bird, it accepts mm-hmm. everything. It, yeah, it's 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 a, it's a lot more than that and it it doesn't necessarily exhaust the bird I mean you you want the bird to come out of this actually feeling that that wow this this world's not so bad yeah <laughs> so, yeah 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 well cool
1: yeah I mean that um I think you know would be interesting for a lot of people to hear and um you know as far as uh you know the other aspects of of I mean was there any other species in there that you that
0: you flew during your, your time, or is it pretty much mainly just those? Um, well, I've flown, flown another number of birds, not terribly successful. I, I'm not a great long winger. Um, probably the problem there is loss of... Uh, not having enough time and not having enough access to the right quarry and situations to fly long wings successfully maybe i don't have the temperament to be a long winger i
1: i have noticed that about a lot of guys that favor uh short wings and exhibitors they uh
0: you know it seems like if that's what they favor that's what they favor nick fox uh said that um the Ostringer is lonely and morose. <laughs> 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 I challenged him on it. He said, no, he didn't say anything of the sort. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We kind of have really selective memories sometimes as falconers, too. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that you could probably vouch for that as well, but, um, well, and, you know, just kind of going back a little bit then, you know, and how you incorporated all this stuff. I mean, whenever you were studying and, I mean, were there any gaps that you had to take off, like whenever you were practicing or were you always able to do this, even whenever you were studying for for your doctorate and
0: all that kind of stuff? Um Well, as I, as I said, I, I managed to do fly hockey classes as a student. Yeah, yeah, right. But there was a big gap. Mm-hmm. Um There was a big gap for a number of reasons. I unfortunately got involved in a war and then I got involved I moved countries and I moved to the Western Cape, where at that time, Falconry was not permitted, was forbidden. Um, and I was trying to develop my career, so I uh, sort of bit the bullet and said, well, you can't do it here, um, so I won't do it, and I'll just get on with what I'm doing. Um, and then I heard about Ed Utley, who lives in a little town not far from me, and he had imported some um Scottish peregrines and was trying to twist the arm of our nature conservation people to allow falconry and I linked up with him and tried to help him with this and we became good friends and and um yeah we managed to get or largely he did get falconry ban reversed and then we negotiated a good policy with the province and we've had pretty good experience flying hawks here for the last 25 odd years.
1: I'm glad that things worked out to where everyone here was able to get that privilege back. And, you know, especially after talking with, with Edmund and, and, um, you know, some of these other guys that have been so instrumental in, and kind of, um, being involved in what it takes to kind of, I don't know, jump those hurdles, so to speak. I mean, it, it sounds like it was an incredible amount of work. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess I, I think that, um, I think that people need to hear, you know, all the different hoops that you have to jump through to try and get something back that's taken away. Well, that's
0: that's the really difficult part. If you've lost it or if you didn't have it, it's difficult to get it started. Uh, We've got experience now from all over the world trying to reverse bans or change policies which to allow falconry with a measure of success. But, you know, our success here in the Western Cape depended also on people who were prepared to sit and listen to what (laughs) we need to do and to be mentally flexible enough to accept that, you know, these strange people want to do something. And is it going to be harmful to conservation? Well, probably not. Maybe it'll be beneficial, actually. And, you know, what they want to do is actually not so bad um and so if you've got people who prepared to listen and to have an open mind you can achieve a lot if you haven't you've got a have a problem yeah <laughs> yeah
1: it's really hard to convince somebody to do anything or or kind of be open-minded to something whenever they're already just so against so, it yeah yeah
0: so you've got to work uh to just change minds and try and get people to open theirs. Uh, We've been successful in reversing bounds, pretty importantly, in Denmark and in Greece. And we're working in Norway uh, against pressure and uphill, um, against people with preconceptions who are not prepared to talk. But. But you get your way through. You know, falconers do a lot of good stuff. We can show what falconers and other countries are achieving. Um, Australia has another point point to note. I mean, there's a country which would be a wonderful falconry country. It's been closed. But there are little openings because people have been prepared to look at certain options with a reasonably open mind. And the role of falconers in rehabilitation um, in truly preparing an injured or, or orphaned raptor to be releasable uh, with a good chance of survival requires falconry practice. Um, and so that's sometimes a foot in the door to show people that actually what we do is is not bad. It's good. And there are benefits to it. Um, so, yeah, we've got to keep working and not lose heart. We try
1: so hard to you know, show falconry in a good light and, you know, around the world and, and continue to work, you know, towards, you know, just making sure everybody sees us in a, in a positive light, but, you know, and it is really, it's, it's sad sometimes how, you know, just one little thing in, in any facet of life can, can kind of turn a negative perception. So, you know, hopefully the things that, that you all have been doing, you know, we'll continue to work and more and more countries that weren't previously accepting of it, you know, we'll, we'll continue to, to be open-minded and, and allow, you know, something, I mean, out of, out of all these countries that, that you are kind of working on these things with, I mean, how, how many of them do you think were kind of previously open to falconry, but were kind of like how, you know, it was here at one point and then just like they allowed it, but then didn't allow it. And, you know, or I mean, have, have there been some countries where it's just pretty much always been, you know, like not
0: allowed? I guess so, so there are countries around the world who have taken a stance, which is anti-sustainable use, anti-hunting. Uh, examples would be countries like uh, India and Kenya, uh, where the authorities are close-minded to, to the use of Raptors and, and hunting, and they're closed-minded to any form of hunting. So, um, it's um, it, it's very difficult to work when that's the sort of national policy. And it's not not just hunting; it's not just falconry. It's hunting across the board, uh, and that their their conservation strategy is an anti-use strategy. Um, it actually doesn't fit with conservation perceptions. There are important reasons why sustainable use is an important tool in conservation. That's recognized in the convention of biological diversity. It was recognized by the, um, this is a big word, the uh, intergovernmental (laughs) policy science platform. So policy informed by science platform for sustainable use and biodiversity They have recently released a global assessment of of sustainable use of ecosystem services. These are the things people get out of nature. Um, It showed how important use of elements from nature is across the world. One in three people in the world rely on something from nature. If it's firewood, food, whatever uh and they found that that broadly recreational hunting was sustainable and was acceptable um so i know this is a this is a big thing this is a, a united nations level finding
1: well i i am sure i could keep asking you questions about all of just the different little nuances that that go into you know i mean i like i find these things fascinating because I like kind of knowing what other countries have had to to deal with and kind of work through, you know, to have falconry in their countries. But I, I will probably go ahead and just switch gears then and, you know, kind of go back to, you know, some of your personal falconry again and kind of go to the part now where, you know, I ask you. Basically, like out of all the the different experiences that you've had in all the years that you that you practice falconry, what like one or two memorable hunts, flights or, or birds, you know, I mean, they, everybody always kind of struggles with this, even if they have time to prep. I know. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, what what are some of the more memorable experiences or, or stories that you have in your time in
0: falconry? So, so I think often falconers try to set up what they see as an ideal flight or, or a flight which would be something they would like to achieve. Um, you know, you probably saw it this morning where we were trying to get all our, all our little ducks in a row to fly <laughs> a peregrine on gray wing up in the mountains, uh, under pointing, over pointing dogs. And you saw how very difficult it is to yeah to actually achieve that that goal and mm-hmm. when it all comes right and you get the pulkin coming down from a, a good altitude um over over flush um gray wing partridge um the dogs have worked well it's an immensely satisfying thing to do so for a short winger there probably are similar similar goals which you'd like to achieve um in terms of getting a flight getting everything right and one of the things I wanted to do with a black sparrowhawk was to get a bird that could catch grey partridge on the rise. And you saw how they flew. You got a little glimpse of how they flew this morning, I think. <laughs> um, they sort of burst from cover and, and rocket off. And so your, your black sparrow hawks got to also burst and rocket off. Um, and I achieved it up here. Um, I've. I did a few times, but I really got it right one time, which is absolutely memorable. I knew that they were growing up a slope so I could work the dog up the slope towards the covey, uh, which I could hear calling. And that would mean the bird would rocket up and probably come over us. Um, and we did this. We went out really early in the morning, got the, got the covey located, got the dog working up the hill and she came on point just ahead of me and slightly above me and we we flashed the gray wing and the black spar just rocketed up and took it about about probably 10-15 meters above my head it was you know and it's one of these sort of heart-stopping moments which happens so suddenly and dramatically and that's probably the short wingers uh, goal a short wing short wing flying is a is a very intense and per- personal form of hunting where long-wing flying is something which spectators probably enjoy more.
1: Well, and I want to ask you real quick too. I mean, you, I know that you, you know, have run dogs and your Falcon incorporated dogs in your falconry. And so I mean, have you pretty much always used pointers or is it pretty
0: much been <laughs> exclusive to that or have you used other, other breeds as well? So I grew up in, in a home where my dad had pointers and, mm-hmm. and it was, a yeah, part of, of what we did um so i have a, a big soft spot for, for english pointers um ed imported ed Utley, who he's mentioned earlier imported some britney spaniels um to the western cape uh, from europe and he's with these sort of european style britneys which are smaller squatter dogs than the american britneys um and they're very good for working in cover and they're good for a short-wing flyer, and he persuaded me, I think he persuaded me by giving me a dog, one of his puppies, (laughs) (laughs) um, which turned into a lovely dog, and was a good working dog, pointed, probably not with the same solid pointing that you get from an English pointer, but very adequate and and useful for an stringer. Um, and I have had a, a number of Britneys, and, uh, but now I've gone back to English pointers. I'm very fortunate to have, uh, given to me, <laughs> a very <laughs> very lovely dog who I'm having great fun running at the moment. Um,
1: well, awesome. I know we could keep going and going all day more than likely, but I will, um, uh, I'll let you off the hook here, here shortly. I know we have, um, other things to do the, you know, the rest of the day and everything, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm really appreciative though of you. Uh, taking the time to do this, and um, you know, like I said, I I know that um, it's important to get you know some of these messages out, especially in in regards to you know like the the roles you know to be played with um, a lot of the conservation aspects of things and stuff too. But um, I want to end this episode on um, a couple of notes. I want to go ahead and ask you. I mean. And I've, I've kind of talked some previously with, with a couple of the guests from this week. But, um, I mean, for people that want to take a more active role, and I mean, you mentioned, you know, the importance of, um, and the recognition of the importance of you know, getting a lot of younger people, you know, involved in, in falconry and, you know, that stuff. But, I mean, I think there's a lot of, um, younger falconers probably that that may not know kind of how to get involved you know with some of um you know the the broader aspect of of you know the the conservation side of things and also possibly serving roles in these different um organizations and everything so what um i mean what would you tell them is the best way to kind of become more active and and get kind of involved with some of these different organizations and and take a more active role in a lot of these things
0: Okay, so, so a lot of us just do our falconry and get on with it and we rely on other people to do the negotiations and organize the permitting and the rights and so on um, and we keep our heads down and, and do what we want to do. Um, but there's, it's important that people put their hand up and engage and you start with your local falconry club and contribute. You know, um, there's always work to be done. There's stuff that can be achieved within within your local falconry club. Um, and you're if you're interested in taking things further, it can grow from there in any direction you want to take it. Get them involved, maybe with the local bird club. See what conservation issues there are in the area and, and, and that falconers could contribute and try and mobilize them. I mean that's something you can do, if you want to go on through the administration of your national club or your provincial club or whatever, uh, you can get involved, involved with the IEF. The IEF is always looking for volunteers, and for, for youth members, um, you'd be welcome to join the youth groups of the IEF. Um, they're all online, they're chatting away busily with each other. They're not, ex- <laughs> they're not in any way sort of exclusive groups. So. You know, you're welcome to go and, and ask to join these groups, um, get involved, see what they're talking about and doing. Um, so, you know, there's two two things with Faulkner, probably to, to try and improve your career as a Faulkner as far as you can, to do the sport as well as you can. Um, but also to get involved in the other stuff, to make sure that Faulknery stays alive, that Faulkner contributes to conservation, so we don't just take out of the... Out of the world, we put stuff back in, and that's that's a very important thing for every falconer to to give thought to. Yeah,
1: and as far as you know, falconry in particular, I mean, what um, what piece of advice would you like to leave you know current and, and prospective falconers? You know, I mean, is there a particular sentiment or um, you know a thought that that you think is is really you know important or um, you know I mean what uh, what what kind of um, you know, sentiment would you kind of I don't know, like a whatever, what 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 best piece of advice would, would you like to give, you know, the the
0: the current and, and future generations of falconers? Yes, I'm probably the worst person to give any advice. <laughs> <laughs> but I think probably to say, look, falconry falconry is a way of life. It's not just a hobby that you can pick up, do for a bit, go and think go do something else. Um, if you want to do Faulkner, you want to do it properly. If you don't want to do it properly, please don't do it at all. Um, that's not any attempt to be exclusive. It's saying look, you know you, you're taking on responsibility for another organism, which is pretty fragile animal, which needs to be looked after properly, uh, which is going to need a lot of commitment. And if we, you want to do this properly, you have to put a lot of time, thought and effort, it's going to have a price on your personal life, it'll have a price on your professional life, um, and just recognize that at the outset. And if you're prepared to make those those sacrifices, if you will, then go and do it. Because um, it's absolutely absorbing and rewarding and thrilling. But you've got to make that commitment. Yeah.
1: All right. Well, and is there anything else that you would like to um I don't know, either uh plug or, you know, just it <laughs> at, at the end at the end here? I mean, is there anything else that, that we've kind of left out of this conversation that you'd like to make make note of before we end this or yeah, creeping pretty pretty broadly covered <laughs> stuff. <laughs> well, I wanted to make sure we covered as many bases as we could and and it's always so impossible to to capture everything about people's you know, lives and falconry and everything in in a span of an hour. But, uh, but I appreciate your time again and thank you again, you know, so much for, for agreeing to do this. And, you know, like I said, I think it's really important for people to hear, especially from people like yourself who have served in, you know, even the much larger capacities and in these different, you know, even like worldwide organizations and stuff. And, uh, you know, I mean, people need to hear these type of things. You know, if I could do it, anybody can.
0: <laughs> All you got to do is stick up your hand and volunteer and get out there and do
1: stuff. Yeah. Perfect. Um, All right. Well, thanks a lot, Adrian. I appreciate your time. And um, you've got a glass of wine there that still needs to be finished. So <laughs> I'd like to get this microphone yeah, out of the way. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm, I don't worry. I'm going to let you off the, off the hook soon. I'll get it out of your way and uh, we can have another drink and, and enjoy the rest of the day. Thank you very much. All right. Thanks a lot.